Let us pray. Our God and our Father, the source of all that is good, the source of our peace, our lives, and the source of life abundant, grant us this time together to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Allow us to be open to your word and your spirit, that we may receive it in faith and that may, it may affect us deeply in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, I had to open my mouth last time <clears throat> and mention that <clears throat> we shouldn't avoid the hard sayings of Jesus or reinterpret them. And of course, today's gospel reading happens to be probably the most difficult saying Jesus says. And so God certainly has a sense of humor. So now today we travel with Mark into the eye of the storm. There's clearly going to be a lot of connections between this sermon and my last sermon. It's like episode two. So we travel with Mark and actually to the eye of the needle where we have to sit and listen in on what Jesus has to say about wealth and the eternal life. So we leave our rich man in the Lamborghini behind. We travel back in time into the first century, somewhere between Capernaum and Jerusalem. And we are with Jesus and the disciples, and they're ready to travel towards Jerusalem, where we meet yet another rich man. This one's uh, called the rich young ruler, who runs to Jesus, falls at his feet, gets on his knees, and raises the question. Good teacher, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He is not asking the question, what shall I do to secure myself heaven when I die? He is not asking, what shall I do to go to heaven? How do I get to heaven? That's simply not the way the Jews thought about things, eternal life in the first century. That's, that wasn't the language they would use. So eternal life and the kingdom of God are essentially the same thing. That's, that becomes clear in the later on in the passage. In the Jewish minds, the Jew, Jewish thinking about eternal life or the kingdom of God could be likened to, let's say, two distinct ages. Okay? You could think of it as an example, life during wartime and life after the war. Life before 9-11, life after 9-11. These are events that rearrange everything we understand about life, our hopes, our fears, our dreams, the way we govern ourselves. So the Jews believed that eternal life, they believed in eternal life in this sense, that there is the present age, and then there is the age to come. The present age is marked, is characterized by sin, injustice, bad people getting away with all sorts of things. But they also believe that at a certain point in history, 
there would be a climactic event that would usher in this age to come or the kingdom of God. So the rich man, when he's approaching Jesus, this is probably what he has in mind. He wants to know, will he be in when this age comes to be present? Will he be in, in the kingdom of God? Jesus' first reply to the rich man is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I will not tackle this monster of a saying. Uh, my new rule is one hard saying per sermon. Controversial saying per sermon. And I'm, since I'm exhausting one, I think I'm allowed to skip that one. So, but let's just say what he wants to do here, or what Jesus' concern is here, is to center the conversation, the discourse that is about to take place on the goodness of God. Bringing the conversation, focusing the conversation on the goodness of God. Then Jesus points to the law. And here's where things get a bit interesting. If anyone, during the first century, if anyone was to approach a Pharisee or someone else from another sect, uh, for instance, the Essenes, and they were to ask the same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they would do this. So they would get a twofold sort of a response from them. First, they would say something about the commandments. They would say something about the law. And then they would add their own specific instructions, their interpretations of that law. That's what they would say. That's, that's the first thing they would probably do. Second thing is what they would most likely say would be, if you were in our community, if you belonged to our community, you could know now, you could be certain now that when the kingdom of God arrives, you will be securely on the side of that age to come. So this is probably what this man is anticipating Jesus, or, or a variation on the theme of Jesus to, to tell him. So Jesus begins uh, by mentioning some of, some of the laws. He begins by giving the man some of the laws from the second table of the commandments. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Besides for the last one that is uh, honor your father and your mother, the rest are really from the second half of the Ten Commandments, which deals with the horizontal relationship. It deals between you and your neighbor. Whereas the first part of the commandment deals with the vertical between you, between us, and God. Although I don't want to spend too much time in this part of the passage, however, it's critical to make a couple of notes here. What is missing here? Well, the first part of the commandment that deals with what? 
God. Or in the negative, it deals with idolatry. Also missing is the command not to covet. Not to covet has been replaced by do not defraud. So the ones that Jesus names, the ones that he gives this rich man, the rich man could do, and he has. And so he's not too far off when, when he says, well, I've been doing all of these things since my bar mitzvah, since I turned 13, and then I began to observe the law. Well, why are the commandments about how God should have no rivals, that he occupies exclusively the place of worship missing here? Why is do not covet missing here? Well, maybe we can think of it this way. The law is central. The law is life-giving to the Jewish mind. So since he's gone these five out of the way, what is left in that silence, in that void, is the first five commandments. This will establish the contrast that what, contrast to what Jesus says about this man, what he reveals about this man. But before he gets there, before he begins to expose him, Mark says, and this is important, Mark says that he looked the man, he looked towards the man in love. This is where he's coming from. So you can imagine Jesus holding the man by the shoulders, and the language there implies exactly that, that he has him by the shoulders of some kind of a physical hold, show of affection. And so he looks him in the eye and says, but there's one thing lacking. Go sell all that you possess, give it to the poor, you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. Like a big bucket of cold water all over this poor rich man's head, seemingly out of nowhere, who asks for this sort of a thing? So obviously the man is shocked. He wasn't anticipating to get this sort of a response from Jesus. So he's shocked, absolutely shocked. And it is when Jesus turns to his disciples to describe, to expand on what just happened with this rich man, the disciples are shocked. So... To make things more clear and to cause generations of Christians, especially wealthy Christians, massive heartburn and potentially life-altering things to think about and mull over, Jesus says, you see that camel? And this, the camel would be the biggest animal they encounter on a daily basis. He, goes, he says, you see that thing? It is easier for that camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is very difficult on our ears, especially for us as Western capitalists, this is hard on our ears. And it was also very difficult for the, the, the disciples as well, and practically for the same reason. They were completely shocked, why? Because they thought if there was anyone who had a chance 
If there was anyone on their way towards the kingdom of God, it would be this sort, this rich young ruler. After all, he is wealthy, Torah-observing Jew. Nothing says favored more than this. Both in paganism and Judaism, wealth was a sign of God's favor towards that person. This is a man whose wealth can be and is interpreted as a sign of the covenant blessing. Now, instead of what seems to be the given, the non-issue towards his original question about eternal life, if anything, it is the sign that he's heading the right direction. He's carrying the signs that he's going that way. Turns out to be the hidden monster. As this rich man, as this rich man's face falls, as he's saddened and he begins to walk away from Jesus, what you want to observe here, what you want to see beneath the surface, is the battle of the two masters over this man's heart. It is God through Jesus on one side and mammon on the other side. As Jesus says elsewhere, one cannot serve two masters. He does not say, notice, that one should not serve two masters, but cannot. It is impossible to serve both. You will either love one and hate the other, despise one, and devote yourself to the other. That's from Matthew 6. Mammon means wealth. And it's actually is connected to the word amen. It communicates the idea of trust, putting your trust in, confidence in, belief in. If you recall from my last, last sermon, I had mentioned something like, as human beings, we are vulnerable creatures. So in order to protect ourselves, secure ourselves, we gravitate towards wealth. It's our preferred covering for our nakedness in this world. Here, Jesus is asking the man to strip away that covering, to become naked again. In fact, what he's asking is directly related to what he had begun to teach right before this incident with the rich man. If you recall, or if you, you could take a look at this later on, but right before this rich man approaches him, there is a group of children who are brought to him for him to bless. And there he says, if you do not become like these children, unless you become like these children, there is no way you could enter the kingdom of God. Here this man cannot become like a child. It's like a do-over that he just does not want to do. Why? He's well ahead in the game of life. He's doing fine. This would cost him everything. Not just wealth, status, his self-understanding, his orientation in the world. It would cost him absolutely everything. This is costly. It's like death. But what he has been building proves to be in violation of what? The first part of the commandments. 
So I want you to see wealth, or I want you to understand wealth, not just in terms of just some stuff, okay? But tremendous spiritual force, a tremendous spiritual power. Regardless of what this man has done, how well he's done with the other commandments, how observant religious man he's been, it's proved to be futile when it comes to idolatry and coveting. So this passage is not merely about honoring Jesus or obeying the law or even eternal life. It's not even really about giving to the poor. It is about the seductive power of wealth in holding people in captivity. Because this is an awfully difficult saying, the tendency to isolate it to this one specific rich man or to spiritualize it is clearly, it's, it's understandable why that tendency exists and why we tend to do it. So often what happens with this passage is that we say, it, it, well, it has to do with the man's heart. And so Jesus says what he says to prove that there's something off with this man's heart. But the way we reduce, sometimes the way we reduce or deal with this reality that, that has been shown here, the revelation really that has been revealed here, we reduce it to the point of it becoming irrelevant to us as individuals or irrelevant to the church. It is certainly a matter of the heart. That is to be sure. But how are we to analyze one's heart condition? We typically throw this sort of a argument out in order to keep the issue clearly still hidden in the dark place of the heart where Jesus here is exposed. And how is he exposed it? By only by asking him to do something. So if we leave the lesson here in the state of make sure your heart is in the right place, well, how would you know that it is? It is action or lack of action that will reveal your heart. What makes things even more difficult for us as it was for our counterparts in the first century is that we don't really consider wealth a potential rival to God. We've baptized wealth. We've Christianized it. So we don't see it as enormous danger. So we don't know exactly what to do with it. And it's a rival like no other. I'll give you an example as to how we process things even after 2,000 years of Christianity. Just consider our heroes. Consider our paradigms. In the past, the hero was, or the paradigm was, the person who looked at these passages. They took it seriously. It was a rich young man that for the sake of the kingdom of God became poor. We have gotten rid of him. He seems to us as a misguided fanatic 
with whom we really don't want to have anything to do with. The new, the one that we prefer, the, the, the new hero, the new paradigm, is the poor man that through hard work, pulling himself up by the bootstrap, becomes rich. And there is no competition between these two figures any longer. One is clearly one. That's our hero. So I want to make this clear. We woefully underestimate these titanic shifts. It is not that we simply uh, prefer one thing or the other that has no consequence. I like apples, you like oranges. There isn't much to that. These are shifts of aims, of goals, of ends. And there is no more profound shift than that. That would govern who we would be in the world. It's the ends that govern that. What if the story of the poor man becoming rich doesn't really end? as it usually does, it doesn't really end in this idealized best of possible worlds that we have imagined it to end in. What if in the midst of, or in the process of this, the man loses his soul? After all, it's written someplace. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his very soul? His very self. I want to suggest to you that that's where, where we are as a culture. Far more importantly, that's where we are as the church. There is nothing more pervasive than this sort of a vision. We are in the business of developing the sort of people that would be utterly shocked when they hear the unadulterated assessment of wealth coming out of Jesus' mouth. Think about this. We are daily bombarded as to what our aims in life should be. And they are not aimed at the kingdom of God. Although we live in the most prosperous nation in the whole world, the need, the hunger for more is relentless in us. It is said that if you make, if you earn something like $50,000 a year and you're single, you're at the top 1% of earners globally. But we don't feel that, obviously. We're stressed, we're stretched, we're working like crazy. We're forced to produce and consume over and, and repeat the cycle over and over and over and over again. We are involved in the most luring of spiritualities known to man, even more potent than Christianity. We are all master practitioners of consumer, well, consumer Christianity, yes, but also consumer spirituality. And the gurus and the priests of this spirituality are out there by hundreds of thousands, if not millions, making sure 
We are all walking right in the service of, well, mammon. So we must necessarily arrive at the disciples' question. Who then can be saved? And the answer is the same as when Jesus uttered it first. It is impossible with mortals. Why is it impossible? Because the power is just simply too great for us to deal with. Also, because the problem is not simply out there in the system, but it's in here within us. And it's attracted towards its external expression, like a magnet, like two lovers. When we realize we're stuck in the impossible, which we are, then we might begin to seek the God that does the impossible, if we want to be saved. One of the impossible gifts that God could grace us with in our context is contentment and gratitude. It is contentment and gratitude that can bring the impossible machine to a grinding halt for the individual and for a community. The most dangerous and countercultural thing a Christian can do in our context in today is to be able to say, enough is enough. I'm good. I'm content. I'm out of the race. This cuts at the heart of what lures us in, whether it be chasing wealth or in the whole consumerism nonsense. That is, it says no to the fear of lack. It says no to the fear of scarcity. No to fear of want. These are the things that fuel our economic system. And it says yes to the abundance of life in God and God's kingdom. After all, the disciples were promised to receive a hundredfold in this lifetime of the good that they had left behind. When God does the impossible to save, our eyes begin to open to the blessings that we have, not least of which is the family around you, the family of God. Because we live in the abundance of the Eucharistic life, a life that is multiplied and feeds all, sufficiently and abundantly. Our contentment and gratitude must at some point spill over into generosity and the other virtues, faith, hope, love, and our lives begin to be characterized by the peace that transcends all understanding. The cost of non-discipleship the cost of walking away is to forfeit all of that in this life and eternal life in the age to come. There is no way we can serve wealth and share in the virtues of hope, love, patience, faith, and probably above all of these, peace. 
Yet these are the basic building blocks of what it means to be fully human, to be alive in the abundant blessings of God. We must understand, we must remember that when Jesus looked at the man from a place of love, what he asked was not intended to hurt him, to destroy him. It was intended to liberate him towards the right ends. It is from the same place of love that he asks us to hope in the God who does the impossible, who can free us from the destructive powers of this world, the foremost of which is mammon. Amen.